Heavenly Father, we want to be faithful to this Lord's Day. We want to come and to lay our hearts and our minds bare before you and ask that you would do what only you can do by your Spirit, and that is to transform us, to make us holy as you are holy. Father, as we look at this great passage from Acts 21, we see that the natural affections of Timothy and of Luke and the others who were with Paul did not align with your will. And if we are going to be honest this morning, we would agree that many of our, our intentions and our affections are not aligned with your will either. Um, we don't ever want to be going against what you have purposed for our lives or for those in our lives that we love. Uh, we want to be able to speak the truth plainly to them and encourage them to press on toward the goal to win that prize. And so I ask, Lord, this morning that you would bring all of our natural affections in check, that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to see clearly the will that you've set for each of us and the will that you've set for our brothers and sisters to faithfully follow you, regardless of what that means, regardless of the sacrifices or the suffering that may entail. I pray that you would do that for us, Father, knowing how hard it is personally how hard it is for us to endure suffering and how much more so those we love dearly that we do not want to experience what we will see Paul experience once he arrives in Jerusalem. And so we're asking, Father, for you to do uh, something that we cannot do on our own. and We rely upon your Holy Spirit to do it. Make us as a church a people with affections that are in perfect alignment with your holy will. Each and every one of us, I pray, you would do that for your glory, in Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. So I'd like to turn your attention to Acts chapter 21. If you are not there, please do so. Um, open up. I want you to see these words with your eyes. It's always good to look at the Word of God with your own eyes. Um, one of the more precious things you can actually gaze upon on this side of heaven. Um, you heard Kirk read. We have some travel logs. The travel logs are given by Luke. Luke was a master historian. By the way, um, these logs actually match history very well in terms of time and place, the names of the cities, those who ruled in the cities. And so we should be very thankful that Luke was such a great historian. And so if you remember, they, Paul ends his farewell address with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And he gets on a, a smaller ship and they're going to they're gonna bounce around the southern coast of Turkey. They're going to hit Kos and Rhodes. And then they're going to land in Patera. And then in Patera, they're going to get on a larger ship. And they're going to sail southeast about 400 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going to land on the Phoenician coast in the city of Tyre. Many of you know that name um, from your studies in Scripture. Tyre is only 125 miles north of Jerusalem. So they're close. Right? Paul has set his course for Jerusalem. When they get in Tyre, look at verse 4, they're, they are warned prophetically not to go. And having sought out the disciples, we, Paul, now remember Luke's writing, he said he's with them, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they, those who were there, um, given a prophetic word, they were calling, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now this was not new, if you remember back in Acts chapter 19, Paul said, I got to go to Jerusalem and then even in Acts chapter 20, if you remember, as he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, he said this. He said, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, meaning I'm being led by the Spirit to go, 
not knowing what will happen to me, then he says in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. So Paul says, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but if the track record thus far holds true, I'm going to be imprisoned and I'm going to be afflicted. And so the Holy Spirit, this is interesting, on the one hand is compelling Paul to go, go and then is telling Paul, not only directly but through multiple people, when you go, it's going to be bad. And again, we looked, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. This is not a mixed message. Um, and the closer Paul gets to Jerusalem, um, his final weeks of freedom before he's arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, uh, these, as we will see today from Agabus' prophecy, they get more and more specific. Uh, this morning, what I would like for us to see is the struggle between the natural and the spiritual affections. We see Paul's friends um, fellow Christians saying, don't go. You know, they're, they're expressing their natural affections. They love Paul. They don't want Paul to suffer. They don't want him to be imprisoned. And then Paul being called by the Spirit to go. And they're in conflict here. And I would say oftentimes our natural affections for our own lives and for others are in conflict with our spiritual affections, those things that God clearly calls us to do. And so my hope this morning is that we will examine our own hearts. So this cannot be a lazy time of religion. I don't want you in 45 minutes to say, I have no idea what he's talking about. I, I want you to spend 45 minutes examining your affections. What motivates you? What drives you? Is it natural or is it spiritual? It is your desire or is it God's desire? Is it your will or is it God's will? Okay? So let's do some good surgery. We'll have the Holy Spirit go in, give us, open up our, our, our hearts and minds that we might hear this clearly. I want to look at two things this morning. One, the dangers of our natural affections and the resolve of our spiritual affections, the dangers of our natural affections and the resolve of our spiritual affections. The theme of the sermon is this, make Christ first in your heart and your affections will follow suit. And that's simple. Make Jesus Christ first in your heart. You want your affections, you want your natural affections and your spiritual affections to be the same? You should. Then make Christ first. Point number one, the dangers of our natural affections. So after praying with and saying goodbye to all the Christians that are in Tyre, uh, Paul and the others, they, they get on another little small ship and they, they head down to Caesarea. And now they're really close to Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, it's nice to hear from some of the characters we looked at earlier, isn't it? He said, oh, I remember Philip. Philip was, if you remember back in Acts chapter 6, we were first introduced to him. He was one of the seven that was charged by the church in Jerusalem to, to meet the needs of the Hellenistic widows to serve the tables, right? And if you believe that passage taught to deacons, he was one of the first seven deacons in the church. It's a glorious thought. But we also know him as the great evangelist, right? He's the first one to, after the the martyrdom of Stephen, he breaks beyond the walls of Jerusalem. He goes and he shares the gospel with the Samaritans. Remember that? And then Peter joins later and the Holy Spirit's poured out. And of course, we know the great story of Philip sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch and then the baptism that followed immediately after that. And so we, we, we have this great understanding of Philip. So he arrives there and, and he stays with Philip. Why wouldn't you want to stay with Philip? I imagine Caesarea had become Philip's home. Um, we know that actually from the end of, of uh, Acts chapter 7, he lands there. He has four daughters who have the gift of prophecy. Um, lots of speculation on why Luke tells us that. 
Uh, I couldn't render exactly why, so I'm just going to leave it. They had the gift of prophecy. Um, They're not the ones who are going to tell Paul what's going to happen. Agabus is going to tell Paul what's going to happen when he lands in Jerusalem. They say, oh, Agabus, I remember Agabus too. Agabus back in Acts chapter 11 talked about the the famine that was going to come upon Jerusalem and the need for an offering. And so these are characters that are, we're revisiting and we're being uh, re-familiarized with. So look at verse 10. Agabus comes to Paul, Paul's in Caesarea, and he's going to speak a word of God to him. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet. So he takes the belt or the sash that would, would wrap Paul's outer garment, he takes it off Paul, and he wraps his own hand and, hands and feet. So he's going to give him a word in Old Testament fashion, right? The, in the Old Testament, we had prophets. You remember in, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 13, do you remember the loincloth that was buried? And that loincloth represented the fact that Israel and Judah did not, did not cling to Christ, did not cling to God, but instead to uh, their own gods. And then, of course, we know Ezekiel chapter 4, 430 days on one side and then on the next, and he spent that revealing the punishment that would come upon Israel and Judah for their idolatry. So Agabus is going to give us an Old Testament-type prophecy. Look at the latter part of verse 11. Takes Paul's belt, binds his hands and feet, his own hands and feet, not Paul's, and then he says in verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit. So this is truly Old Testament prophetic word. Thus saith the word of God, right? Agabus has a word for him. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, of course that's Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, just as Jesus went to Jerusalem and was arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, and certainly they're thinking this same theme, Agabus reveals that this will be the fate for Paul. Now, Agabus doesn't go so far as to say, and you're going to be executed too. He doesn't tell him that he's going to perish. But certainly, Paul was thinking that, and those, all of his friends, Timothy, Luke, and the other six that were with him, were thinking that. So going to Jerusalem was a life-threatening endeavor. This was no small matter. He wasn't just bringing the offering to help the famine relief. This was a dangerous thing for Paul to do. Now, I want you to to understand that the word was given by Agabus to Paul to encourage Paul, not to discourage him. And it was to encourage him in two ways. Number one, it was to give him an understanding of what was coming up, right? An expectation, a very realistic expectation of what was about to happen to him. My beloved, I I, I think it's good for us to be wise about our futures. I really do. Especially in this day and age when the culture tells us that you can do and be anything you want to do and be, right? And I'm not here to shatter your dreams, but realistic expectations are very, very good. In fact, we would call that wisdom, right? When you have unrealistic expectations and those expectations are dashed, those are times that lead to temptation and often great sin. We had a, a young lady that was here years ago, and she wanted to be married and have children by the time she was 25. That's a very, that's a very noble thing. And then 26 came, and 27 came, and 30 came, and she was never married. Um, she ended up leaving this church. She ended up going to isolation. She ended up living in sin as a result of her expectation being dashed. 
So instead of submitting to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, in your singleness, use your singleness to serve your true husband, Jesus Christ, she turned the opposite, and she went the wrong way. Now, the Bible doesn't call us to be pessimistic, but what some have labeled, and I like this, optimistic realism. Optimistic realism. Realistic about what? But we live in a fallen world. You have no idea what tomorrow holds for you, good or bad. So we want to be realistic. We are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. So we're subject to the ebb and flow of that. And optimistic, listen, at the same time because what? You're united with Christ. You are united with Christ. And therefore, your today, your tomorrow, and your eternal future is perfectly secure in him. So be realistic and be optimistic at the same time. If you're united with Christ, listen, then God God who is sovereign is your father and he is good. Amen? So the word was given to Paul to encourage him with this understanding. There was another aspect of the encouragement too. And I believe this probably brought even greater comfort than the previous. And that was that, that God would be with him. Right? So Agabus tells Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. Obviously, he's being led by the Holy Spirit. God in advance is telling him what's going to happen, and Paul is rightly surmising, that means God will be with me. And Paul knew better than most that if God was with him, then what? Who could be against him? Neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul was secure in the arms of God, and therefore he could go with great courage and great excitement. So Agabus' prophecy encouraged Paul to press on, but Timothy and Luke and the six other traveling companions and all those who were gathered there in Caesarea, they don't hear the word the same way. Look at verse 12. When we, Luke and the others, when we heard this, the prophecy from Agabus, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now that's, that's a mixed message, right? That's confusion in hearing the word of God. Paul hears it and he's comforted and he's encouraged to press on. They hear it and they say, you shouldn't go. Well, they both can't be right, now can they? One is God's will, another is not. Now, to give Timothy and Luke and the others a little bit of slack here, they had been hearing for weeks multiple prophecies leading up to the most specific by Agabus that when he goes, it's going to be bad, right? For all intents and purposes, these seemed like warnings not to go, right? You're going to go, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. We know what happened when Christ did that, so you shouldn't go, Paul. And it was, now listen, my beloved, it was too much for them to bear. They loved Paul so much. This was their friend. This was their companion. This was their pastor. They loved him, and they did not want him to go and to suffer in this way. And certainly for those who were thinking missionally, they had to be saying, this can't be good for the mission. If you go and you're arrested and handed over to the Gentiles, then how are we going to continue? How are we going to get to Rome? How are we going to get to Spain? Can't do that. And so they urge him. In the Greek, it's they begged him. They were reasoning with him. Um, you can hear the dialogue at the dinner table. Paul, did you hear what Agabus said? Did you hear what they said in Tyre? Did you hear what they said in Miletus? If you go, it's going to be bad. Arrest, persecution, and then hand it over to Rome. They reasoned. And their reasoning was probably pretty good. I imagine many of us might have been persuaded. The problem is Paul knows unequivocally God's will is for him to go. He knows that. The Spirit has revealed that to him. And so they come to Paul, I do believe, with right motives. I do believe they, they were speaking out of love. They really didn't want Paul to go because they loved Paul. 
And yet I want you to notice something, and this is essential for the entire sermon. Their good motives were not in line with the will of God. Their good intentions were not in accord with God's will. Now these were, these were Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit, knowledgeable of the word of God, hearing prophetic utterances. They're mature believers, and yet their natural affections were being pitted against God's will. Now, I don't have to tell you, that's always a bad thing, regardless of how good your intentions are to have your will against the will of God. You remember, it was, it was Jesus who taught us how to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, say it with me. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus taught us how to pray like that. And as Jesus prepared to make his way to Jerusalem, to be arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. You remember it was Peter who had a very similar dialogue with our Lord and Savior. Peter, the great apostle, one of Jesus' inner three, he was in the inner circle. He loved Jesus so much. When Jesus said what was going to happen to him, Peter said, you can't go, Lord. Peter let his natural affections get the best of him. Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And then Peter, Peter now, this is out of love. If you've never read Matthew 16, in love, it's in love. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I love you too much to have you go and be arrested and then persecuted and handed over to the Gentiles and be crucified? He knew what Jesus was talking about. Peter's intentions were good, but he was setting himself up against the will of God. In fact, we can argue this is probably one of the worst arguments in human history for mankind because had Jesus listened to Peter, we'd all perish. We'd all perish, but he loved him. I I believe you would have said the same thing. I think I would have. I think I'd have said, no, Lord, you can't go. You can't go. You know what happens next. Verse 23, Matthew 16, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's natural affections, natural love for Jesus got the best of him. In other words, his heart and his mind were no longer on the things of God, but on what? On the things of Peter on the things of Peter. What did Peter want? Not what did God want. And then Jesus said in verse 24, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, right? So that's get your affections in line with God's affections. Get your will in line with God's will. Oftentimes, my beloved, our motives, although they may be pure and good, are not necessarily in line with the will of God. Not necessarily. Sometimes they are, sometimes they are not. If we are not careful about denying ourselves, and that includes denying our relationships with others and what we want for them. Parents listen very closely to this. Sometimes very hard for us. Sometimes we use our affections to press others to do that which God does not want them to do. And we think it's good. It seems good temporally. We may use all of our reasoning skills to try to convince them, but if it's not in line with God's will, here, listen. If you're using your natural affections to influence somebody to do something contrary to the will of God, you are being like Satan. I know that's hard to hear, 
but it's no different. Peter said, don't go. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. When you are loving, supposedly loving a brother and sister, and you are moving them away from God and the cross and God's will for them, you are acting like Satan. I gotta tell you, that's never good either. We don't ever want to be seen as someone who is serving Satan rather than serving God. When Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century missionary to China, most of you have heard of Hudson Taylor, when he was growing his missionary field and he needed workers, he, he started bypassing the churches because the churches didn't want to send people. It was too risky and people were dying. So he went directly to college campuses and he started sharing the, the gospel, how it was going out in China and the need for more missionaries in China. And he was getting a lot of interest from these students, except the parents were not interested in their students going to China. The greatest stumbling block was not their desire to go, it was the parents not wanting them to go. One author wrote this, listen, he said, who can blame them? Who can blame the parents? Their children were likely to die within two years of departure. Many parents want whatever the Lord has for their children as long as it's on their own terms. This was very convicting for me, by the way. I think that's true for most of us. Children, grandchildren, close friends, spouses, we want what God wants for them as long as what God wants for them is what we want for them, right? That's not God's will, and that's our will. I, I can sympathize. I think most could sympathize. It's, it's right for parents and those we love to protect those we love, right? We want to protect and provide for them. But whenever our natural affections in any relationship supersede the will of God, they're no longer right, and they're no longer good regardless of the motive behind it. And whether you want to admit it or not, you're acting like Satan. You're acting like Satan. Even on a more day-to-day -day level, we think about these major life decisions, you know, going to China or engaging in some ministry work here. It is not uncommon for Christians when relating to other Christians to work against the very clearly revealed word of God. Now, we don't have Agabuses here today giving us a word. We have the word of God giving us a word. So we, have to, we don't have to question these things. So, for example, husbands, when your wife wants to spend time alone with God, studying his scripture, praying with God, meditating, and you entice her with time with you, maybe out to dinner, maybe to watch a movie, maybe to do something fun, even though your intentions aren't good, and, and husbands, you need to do that. If you do that to pull her away from God, then you are acting like Satan. Parents, if you neglect family worship or maybe church attendance on a regular basis to bless your children with all the activities that the culture offers, all the sports and all the entertainment and all the vacations. You may be doing it because your natural affections is to love them. You say, this is good. Look how much fun they're having. They're so happy. But if your natural affections are superseding God's will for them to be trained up in the faith, to become disciples of Jesus Christ, then even with your own children, you're acting like Satan. When you hear that a brother in Christ who may not be very well to do, is going to give a generous offering to the church or to a ministry that he's been praying for. And you come along with some financial counsel and you explain to him that he's not well to do and he needs to save his money for a rainy day or maybe he takes some of that money and spend it on himself. Whether you believe it or not, if God desires him to give that gift, you are speaking to him as Satan would, withholding the blessing of 
honoring Christ. If you know someone that's in a difficult marriage, and as a friend or as a parent, you encourage them to flee the marriage, because that's what we do in our culture, because you want to be happy. If you encourage that, rather than saying, stay the course, God hates divorce, you may be appealing to their natural affection too, but we know it is contrary to the Word of God. The thoughtful Christian, my beloved, and we want to be thoughtful Christians, we want all of our affections, especially as we express it to those that we love, every moment of every day to be in accordance with God's will. So whether or not we're packing our bags to go to China or talking about life in the context of the local church, God's will, not our own personal natural affections, good or bad, must be sought and submitted to above all else. Above all else, which means we have to be contemplating those things and asking. I mean, really asking in prayer and through the word, is this really what's best for them? Should I be saying this to them? Will they respond in such a way that actually may cause them to turn away from following Christ? That's not a good thing. We want, to, we want our natural affections to be in line with God's will for three simple reasons. One, you don't want to act like Satan. Well, that's never good. Some of the sharpest words that came out of Jesus' mouth to any of the disciples was that, get behind thee, Satan. Number two, for their sake, right? We want our brothers and sisters following and submitting to the Holy Spirit and doing what Christ wants them to do, even if you don't want them to do it. And lastly, I think most importantly, for God's sake, right? Every believer, every moment of every day doing what pleases God most should be our desire for ourselves and those that we say we love, if we really love them, and we love them all the way to the cross of Christ. All right, so first I pray you see that our natural affections for others even when well-intentioned, will not always be in line with God's will, not most pleasing to God. We must guard our hearts and keep our natural affections in submission to God, especially with those we love dearly. Especially with those we love dearly. So the question is, and the last point, how do we do this? I mean, my beloved, this is really, really hard. It's hard enough when you know what God has called you to do, and you know there'll be suffering involved. It's hard enough. It's even harder, I would say much harder, when it's someone we love that's being called to do something that is hard. Spouse, children, grandchildren, best friend, brother and sister you've known for years, and they're being called to do that, which you know will bring persecution or suffering. How do you, how do you check your natural affections that you can actually love them properly in Christ? Because you want to, right? I mean, ultimately, you want to. Maybe not in that moment, but ultimately, you want to. Second point, stay with me, the resolve of our spiritual affections. How do we counter the natural? Look at verse 12. How do we counter the natural affections? Verse 12, Luke writes, When we heard this, speaking of Agabus' prophecy, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13, then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I mean, Paul's dying here. Timothy and Luke and the others, they were not being loving. They were being selfish. They thought they were being loving, but they were being selfish. The Holy Spirit 
brought these prophetic warnings to prepare and encourage Paul, and those that loved him most, it says they were breaking his heart. Literally, you know what that means? They were drawing the strength and drawing the courage out of the heart of Paul, making it really, really hard for him to do what God had called him to do, and that was to go to Jerusalem and suffer. He says, what are you doing? Why are you making it so hard for me to be faithful to Christ? Why are you making it so hard for me to fulfill my ministry? You're supposed to be helping me. These were not helpmates in this moment. Oh, but so thankful for Paul's resolve. This is key, my beloved. Listen, not only can your natural affections unchecked be contrary to the will of God, which is always bad, they may cause those you love who also love the Lord to stumble. They may cause those in your life who are really trying to pursue Christ and do what is right, even though it's really, really hard, it may cause them to stumble and possibly turn away from doing what God has called them clearly to do. So you heard it read already. I'm going to read it to you again. It is never, ever, ever good for you to cause one of God's children to stumble, even in the smallest way. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble. Jesus was not using hyperbole here. He said it'd be better for them, those who cause his children to stumble, to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be thrown to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, a big millstone, an average millstone in the first century was about 3,300 pounds, right? You tie 3,300 pounds around your neck, and I don't care if you're Michael Phelps, you're not swimming, right? You're going straight to the bottom. You're going to drown. Right? So it's never a good thing to cause God's children to struggle. So we must be, I would say, extremely careful in how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Extremely, exceedingly careful in how we share our natural affections with one another. You don't want to make it hard for believers to follow Jesus. You want to make it easy for them to follow Jesus, right? One of the things that we're supposed to do is to build each other up to that point. So as members of a local community like this, you, if, if someone is being selfish or lazy or involved in the world, you don't want to make that easy for them by giving them excuses or telling them why it's okay or maybe supporting them in that. You don't want to do that. And you don't want to not know them well enough to know when you need to help them align their lives with Christ. And I think that's probably the greater issue we have today, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, it's not so much our natural affections are too much and we deter people from following Christ. The natural affections are not there. So we say nothing because ultimately we really, we really don't care. I mean, we care, but we really don't care because the affections are not there. The Bible teaches, listen, that every Christian is placed in a local community just like this to build each other up, right? To what? To the full stature, the full measure of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, we are to speak the truth in love to one another. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now that's truthful, loving speaking. Truthful words, which sometimes are hard words. So what, what, should, the, what should those with Paul who loved him should have been saying to Paul out of love? What should their spiritual affections communicated to Paul? It wouldn't have been, don't go, brother. It would have been something like this. This is amazing. God has a plan for you. He's purposed you to go and be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Press on, brother. Go, brother. We will pray for you, brother. We'll be with you, brother. That's what they should have said. Not don't go. 
we are to speak these words to one another as well. All the time here in the context of the church, we are to encourage one another to serve and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Even that word today from the pulpit, we hear that and we go, yeah, sacrifice. I'm sacrificing right right now. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm sacrificing. This is not sacrifice. If this is sacrifice, we're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble if this is sacrifice. Real service, real sacrifice, real pain, real suffering for the sake of the gospel. We encourage each other to that end for the sake of Christ. That's what they should have been saying to Paul, and that's what we should be saying to one another, rather than allowing our natural affections to get the best of us. And truth be told, I believe, my my beloved, we don't speak the truth because we want to keep the peace. Right? We just we just don't want trouble. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to press or push because if we do, they might receive it wrong and then they'll come back against me and I don't want that. I'm, I'm too busy in my life. We want to keep the peace, but that's not love. That's not love. Real love seeks what is best for our brothers and sisters according to God's will, not ours, and certainly not our emotional comfort. So when a brother, for example, in the church has no real life in the body except maybe gathering here for an hour or so because he has filled his life with his own affections. And you say nothing. You say nothing to him ever, Sunday after Sunday, week after week. Your natural affections are getting the best of you because you don't want to displease or disrupt that brother. Or if you know a sister in Christ who's engaged in a perpetual sin, and, and you know that sin, and each week they make an excuse for that sin, and you talk to them about it, but they're okay with it. And you come to them and you say, you know what, God understands, don't be too hard on yourself. That's your natural affections getting the best of you. The answer is repent immediately. Let me help you to that end, because sin always leads to death. Paul was not moved by their urging. Look at the latter part of verse 13. I mean, these are, these are those verses you want to just grab onto and hold and say, Lord, I'm not like this. Give me this life. Make me like this. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Oh, amen, amen, amen. Paul's saying enough. Uh, don't, don't talk to me anymore about this. Right? I'm ready to go to Jerusalem, God's city. This is the place of martyrs. It has been, had been for the history of Israel. Remember what Jesus said when he approached the city in his final days. Matthew 23, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that what? That kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, including Paul. Including Paul. And then Jesus said, How often I have gathered, I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. You didn't want it. So Jesus, like Paul, he knew the dangers that faced him in Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him, that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would be arrested. He'd be arrested. He'd be handed over to the Gentiles, and he'd be handed over to Pontius Pilate. He knew that his fate, his end, would be to tried and beaten and then executed on a Roman cross. He knew all that lay ahead. That was his plan, God's will for his life. But out of his greater desire, listen, for you to save you, a sinner, out of his greater desire to fulfill God's plan to redeem mankind and what? And restore the heavens and the earth. 
to make all things new. Jesus, like Paul, in Acts chapter 21, he set his face, Luke says this, Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would not be detoured. No one could tell him not to go. No one could encourage him not to go that he would listen to. Now, I want you to remember something. Our Lord and Savior, we be, believe to be truly man and truly God. So every temptation not to go, Jesus knew too. So just as Paul is listening to those in Caesarea saying, don't go, don't go, and he says, you're breaking my heart. You're really pulling on my flesh here. So too did Jesus struggle. We know that by his prayer in the garden when he asked the Father for the cup to pass from him. Jesus' natural affections for himself as truly man, it would be not to suffer, right? No man wants to suffer, ever. His natural affections for his disciples and his mother and his family and his friends would be for them not to see him go through the suffering. How hard that must have been for them to see what he would go through even to the point of death on the cross. And yet, as strong as his natural affections were, his spiritual affections superseded. Praise God for our souls. His spiritual affections won the day. What do I mean by spiritual affections? I mean having your heart, your desires, your life on the eternal things. Right? The things of God. What really matters ultimately. What pleases God most. Our Lord's greatest desire for his disciples and his friends and his family and even his enemies who were going to put him to death, his greatest desire for them was eternal life. Through him. By grace, through faith. His greatest desire was to use his broken body and his spilled blood to break the bonds of sin and death, to set multitudes by the millions free from the power of sin and death. His greater desire, as we saw last week, was to bring the power of the resurrection to our present moment so that we can, through repentance and faith, truly live as a free people of God, not bound by our sin, not bound by our temptations and our struggles, but free to walk in righteousness. Jesus' greatest desire, here's a profound thought for you, his greatest desire was to redeem a people for his own glory, for the glory of the Father and the glory of the Spirit, to bring your natural affections in line with your spiritual affections so that you too, like Christ, can have affections that are in line with the will of God. And what a great prayer for us. Lord, make my natural affections my spiritual affections so they are one in the same. So that everything that I do, every relationship that I have, every word I speak is in perfect accord with your holy will. That's God's desire for your life. So what a great prayer. What a great prayer for us, my beloved. Paul was able to stay the course, even though literally every single person for weeks had been saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. Paul's a man, just like us, subject to all the temptation to not, Listen to God. But Paul, unlike many of us, I believe, was a man of great faith. Great faith. He, he trusted in Jesus. He trusted implicitly in the work that Christ accomplished for him on the cross. He knew that he'd been bought with a price. He knew that the Holy Spirit now dwelt in him. He knew what he'd been called to do. Paul truly believed that he was now a son of God the Father most high. Paul truly believed that his eternal destination would be in the home of God, the Father Most High. And with this trust and with this faith, knowing that he had truly been united with Christ, 
the Apostle Paul was able to suppress his natural affections, which would have been to run. Go right back to Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus was a good ministry. Let's go back there. I can live there. He had to suppress all that and instead set his face to Jerusalem. Look at the latter part of verse 13 again. Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, as Agabus had foretold, but Paul says, I'll add to this prophecy, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he says, I'll become a statistic. I'll become another martyr in the, in the history of this city of God that kills the prophets. I'm okay with that. Not because, listen, Paul didn't want to give up his freedom. He wanted to remain a free man to do the work of God. And Paul certainly did not want to be persecuted and die at the hands of the Romans. He did not want that. But he wanted more, above all else, to love and honor the name of Jesus. It's such a a simple part, the latter part of verse 13. The name of the Lord Jesus he wanted to honor and love most because Jesus honored and loved him on the cross. See, Christ went to Jerusalem and he ascended the cross to honor Paul, to give Paul life. So Paul says, certainly now that I have eternal life and I've been bought with a price and I'm united with the Christ, I can go. I can go to Jerusalem. I can be arrested. I can be persecuted. And if I have to die for the sake of Christ, even on a cross myself, I will do that for the name of my Lord. Why? He is worthy. He is worthy. Paul's courage was a product of Paul's heart and his greatest desire, his spiritual affections. Listen to this. To live, to listen every moment of every day and do everything for the glory and majesty and exaltation of the name of Jesus. Not his own. Paul says, it's not my name. It's Christ's name. Christ's name is worthy of all my life, of everything. To live for the name of the Lord Jesus. To live for his infinite worth because he is infinitely worthy. To live for his infinite sacrifice on the cross to redeem sinners like us. To live for his unmatched love for the Father. To live for his unmatched love for you, sinners saved by grace. Paul says, I, I, I want to live for this name that offers salvation by grace through faith to all who repent and believe. I want to live for this name who enabled me to be adopted into the family of God. Paul says, I want, I, I want to live for this name and all that it reveals about who he is and what he did because his name is to be exalted and lifted up above all names. Paul wasn't just saying that as a doxology or something to sing about. Paul lived it. He said, I want my whole life to be subject to the magnification and glorification of Jesus Christ. All that I do, all that I say, going here, going there, being arrested, persecuting, dying if necessary, for Christ's sake, for he is worthy. Oh, my beloved, you want radical transformation in your heart and mind? That's it. That's it. Make Christ first. Make Christ first. Look at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house 
of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple whom we should lodge. So they, they get to Jerusalem. Did you notice the change of heart of those in Caesarea? Did you notice how they changed? They stopped badgering Paul. Paul was not going to be persuaded, but they, they come to the right place. They submit to the Holy Spirit's leading, and look at they said, let the will of the Lord be done. That's where they should have started, and they wouldn't have broken Paul's heart. My beloved, this is where we want to begin and end in everything in our lives. Everything. Regardless of what your life is, what's going on in your life right now, you want the beginning and the end to be, thy will be done for me and for all those that I love. Whatever that looks like, Lord. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a scary prayer, is it not? Whatever thy will, whatever your will is for my life, Lord, let it be done. Beginning to end, every affection of yours, every desire, every plan for you and for all those that you love and maybe for those that you love most, seeking after knowing, walking in, and then resting in the will of the Lord. You see, sometimes we seek after, and we find, we say, oh, I'm not doing that. So we want to seek, we want to find, we want to walk in, and then as we're walking into the gate to Jerusalem, and we know pain and suffering will come, we must remember who had gone before us, that it was Jesus Christ who entered those gates and then suffered on our behalf. Like the Apostle Paul, we too can go into the most horrific circumstances. Whatever God is calling you to do, according to his word, according to prayer, according to the body of Christ, encouraging to that end, you can do it. You absolutely, 100% can do it if it is his will. You can. God gives you that strength, not on your own, but through Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit dwells in you to live for Jesus' name, to live for his name, to put his kingdom and his purposes above your own. Again, these are not, these are not popular messages today, right? In, the, in our cultural moment, it's all about what we want to do. We want to do. In the kingdom of God, it's the other way around. It's what God desires most for you. So engaging in the ministries that may be inherently dangerous, using your gifts and talents as God has given you to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ, which means it may cost you time. It may cost you money. It may cost you heartache. Right? Relationships are hard. These people were loving Paul and uh, trying to love Paul, and he, he said, you're breaking my heart. We're going to make mistakes. That's okay, right? But we have to engage. We have to engage one another to this end, as Paul was to them. That means truly loving and encouraging each, uh, each other to do the same as Paul did, as Christ did. Not to live, listen, some typical, soft American life of possession and entertainment, my beloved. It's, I'm at it. I'm at it personally. Our life is just ridiculously soft. We had a chance this morning to, to pray for the Christian brothers and sisters in India who were persecuted last Sunday on Easter Sunday. And I was so convicted. Kirk said, we were here with a full church in the blessing of this place, free to preach the gospel and receive the gospel while our brothers and sisters on that same day were being put to death. Because it's easy... We don't want to slide into that, right? We want to live for the name of Jesus. We want to engage in the ministry. We want to do the work, regardless of the cost. You will be, my beloved, and you already know this, you will be most blessed if you do. 
if you truly live for Jesus' name in all that you do. Paul, you heard it once. I'm going to read it briefly again, and I'm going to close. Paul said, indeed, listen, here's what you want your heart to be. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and following, Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's it. Paul got it. The most important thing to Paul was knowing Christ Jesus Lord. Not knowing about, but knowing him intimately and personally. Loving him and being loved by him. That's it, my beloved. Can you say that? Can you say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus? If so, you'll go to Jerusalem. You'll suffer for the name of Christ. You will sacrifice for Jesus if that is your heart's desire. He said, for For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may again gain Christ and be found in him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus, being in Jesus, and following Jesus, and then what? Making much of the name of Jesus. His name above all names. Remember, that's where we're all going to end up. We saw that last week. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We all end there. So why not do that now? Why not live our lives now for the name of Jesus? Now, I would argue for most of us, that's going to require a radical reorientation of everything. Your relationships, your marriage, your children, your work, your worship, your community here, everything being brought before the Lord and say, Lord, strip it all away that in everything I might bring you honor and glory. Everything. Holding nothing back. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. And you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to bring that suffering upon yourself by not following Christ in all ways, in all things. Christ was first in Paul's heart, and Paul's affections followed suit. Christ was first in Paul's heart, and his affections followed suit. Make Christ first in your heart, and your life will be the same. Not easy, difficult but worth it because you will live a life worthy of the calling. You will live a life that's pleasing in God's eyes. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask first and foremost that you would forgive us for living more as the world lives than like Christ or the Apostle Paul here in Acts 21. I think that most of us feel like we've been swallowed up by this world. Our natural affections rule the day in how we work and how we play and how we relate and even how we dissuade others from pursuing Christ faithfully. Maybe, Lord, it's a misplaced affection. Maybe it's a sense of guilt or conviction that we are not pursuing Christ and so we want to make it easy as well for others. I pray, Lord, you would forgive us and instead replace here at this church, at this local body, with each and every one of us to say, as the Apostle Paul said, that we want to know Christ, that we are okay suffering for Christ because to gain Him is to gain the world. I pray, Lord, that we would, by the power of Your Spirit, check our natural affections, not only in how we live day to day, but certainly in how we relate to others, that we would be encouraged, Lord, by the great sacrifices made by Paul and we would encourage others to the same That we would ask hard questions like, how are you serving? How are you sacrificing? Where are you going? 
And we would do that in love, real love, Lord, not cheap love and not selfish love, but a love that desires for all that we know in Christ and outside of Christ to bring you honor and glory. Lord, bring that understanding to us today. Check the desires of our heart today and then realign them with your will. I ask this for your glory ultimately and for the blessing of myself and my brothers and sisters here. In Christ's name, amen.